that then the Christians, they send out this message to the church and they say, pray. Pray for the expansion of the gospel. Pray that we will continue to go on. Uh, pray for boldness. Pray uh, that God will work in this tribe and soften their hearts and that they will receive the gospel. Uh, what we see in Revelation is we see this reality. We see the reality that as Christians, we will face suffering, we will face persecution, and we will even face death for the sake of the gospel. But what we also see in Revelation is that even the death of the saints will not stop the advancement of the gospel. In the six seals, we see that, yes, saints will die, but God then uses the death of the saints, the very blood of the martyrs, as the means for then advancing the gospel further and further in this world. And there's testimony after testimony and story after story we could tell about Christians who have gone forth in unreached areas where they have died, and then the gospel has continued to go forth, and people have been saved. In fact, God in his great sovereignty, he uses our death as a means of advancing the gospel. And what we also see in Revelation is that we do not need to fear death because God has sealed us. He has placed his name on our forehead, which means that we are possessed by him. He owns us. We are his children. He will guard us. He will protect us so that even if we are put to death, we will not be put to shame because nothing can actually separate us from his love. So while the world may take our life, it cannot separate us from the love of God, and it only will bring us into his very presence. Revelation shows us that this war between God's kingdom and this world will not last forever. In chapter 14, which Chris preached, we saw that Satan's kingdom will be crushed like grapes in a wine press. And now, what we have in chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 is the unpacking of that wine press. That, that's what it is. That's, that's what we're going to see. In chapter 16, we're going to see seven bowls of wrath come upon this world. And then in chapters 17 and 18, we're going to see what that looks like. In the bowls of wrath, we see that God's wrath comes upon Babylon, which is the people of this world, which is the anti-bride. If the church is the bride of Christ, unbelievers are the bride of Satan. Does that make sense? So there's two people groups. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And so chapter 16 shows the bowls of wrath. Chapter 17 and 18 will show what that looks like for God's wrath to come upon Babylon, which will bring its full destruction. Chapter 19 will then show the death of the Antichrist and, and, the, and the false prophet. Chapter 20 will then show how Satan and all who have rejected him will then be thrown into the lake of fire. So 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 are all the unpacking of what it looks like for God's wrath to come upon this world like grapes in a wine press. And when we read about God's judgment, we're not only supposed to think about what will happen to unbelievers. See, there, there's a thing that oftentimes I think as Christians we go, I don't like reading about it. That's just heavy stuff. We don't want to just keep reading about judgment and wrath. And I get it. Like, that's not the parts of the scripture that we just turn to on a regular basis and go, okay, kids, now before we go to sleep tonight, let's read a little bit about grapes being crushed. But, you know, I mean, that's not where we go. But... Well, often what happens is we kind of pendulum swing and we ignore those passages or we, or we separate ourselves from them and we only read them in a little bit. But what we're going to see today in the midst of these bowls is a message 
for the church. And it is a message that we would stand firm in our faith. It is a message that we would not become a part of this world, that we would not be distracted in our faith by the very idols of this world. And so we're to ask ourselves, am I ready for Jesus' return? Am I living in anticipation of the return of Jesus? So as we read about these bowls, we're going to, yes, see the wrath of God's judgment, and we're going to see the misery upon unbelievers. And all of that is meant to not only move us to praise to God for being just and for being the judge of righteousness, but it's also to spur us on in our faith that we would say, am I living? Am I living out my faith as God has called us to? These judgments are meant to awaken us and to spur us on. And so that is what we are going to do today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to stand. We're going to read from chapter 15, verse 5. We're going to go all the way through chapter 16. Now we stand here, when we read God's word, we do so because we believe God's word is inspired, it is inerrant, it is for the purpose of equipping, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training us in righteousness. And so we do so as a means of reminding ourselves, this is not just any other book, but this is God's word to us. And so let us now read verse 15, chapter 15, verse 5. After this, I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then... I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out its bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out its bowl into the rivers and the springs of, of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the water for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about exposed and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It 
is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great, splitty, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the, the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to this passage, and there is great weight here. God, there are difficult things for us to see, but God, may we see the clear message of your word. You are a just and righteous God. You have given salvation through your Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that all who believe in him will experience eternal life, that we possess it now. And Lord, we clearly see in this passage that for any who reject your son, the means in which you have given that we would be saved, the one who has come to absorb your wrath, if we reject that, there is judgment to be paid. And God, may, may this passage bring horror to us. May it awaken us. May it spur us on. May it give us a heart for the nations, a heart for our friends and unbelievers that are around us that do not yet know you. God, may we be a people who go forth to share the gospel that more and more people will come to know you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Okay. Chapter 15. Seven angels come out of the heavenly sanctuary. They're given seven bowls of wrath. Verse 8, we see that the sanctuary is filled with the smoke of the glory of God. 16, verse 1, we read the words, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. What we need to understand is that these bowls and the pains and the calamities that they will bring come from God. These seven bowls of wrath are not chaotic events, but rather they are God's strategic means of bringing judgment on the earth. Now some people, and I'll say this I think several times, will, will take, uh, will believe that these bowls will return or will occur right before the return of Jesus. There's positions about that. I, I believe that they're taking place now. At least bowls 1 through 5 are, and bowls 6 and 7 will take place later. Just as seals 1 through 6, or i got to remember them all, I think seals 1 through 6 are now, Seal seven later, trumpets one through six now, trumpet seven later. I believe bowls one through five now, bowls six and seven later. Let me just give a few um, uh, reasons. Number one, when we look at the seals and the trumpets, we saw they're taking place now. And so it seems likely that the very bowls are also taking place now. The bowls and trumpets are extremely similar. Both are carried out by seven angels. Both originate from the throne room. Both are directed towards unbelievers. Both occur in the same order. One commentator said the trumpets are like, are like snapshots, like little snapshots of God's judgment, like warning calls. 
and, and the bowls are more like the panoramic shot that you're giving us more details than what the trumpets gave, which seems to make sense because as we've progressed in Revelation and as we're getting uh, closer to the time where Christ returns, we're getting more and more details about what God is doing and how he will return. Another reason, these bowls are God's wrath. Uh, another reason why these bowls are God's wrath uh, now is that God's wrath is displayed right now here on earth. We're told that in Romans 1.18. We read that God's wrath is revealed from the heavens, and when we see how is it revealed, and we go through chapter 1, we see that it's revealed in the very fact that unbelievers are, are, are it, it says that God lets them go on into their sin, and that they continue to rebel against him, and we're given that long list at the end of Romans 1 that unpacks the sins of, of mankind, and, and if you remember, it even says they become inventors of evil. They continually come up with new ways of rebelling against God, and we're told that that is a very that, that is the display of God's wrath, that he lets us go further into our sin, and that as we will see, which leads more and more into the very misery of man. We could go into more reasons, um, but timing is important, but more importantly, we need to know the importance of these bowls. And so that, that's what I want us to do is go, what is the purpose of these bowls? And, and I think they reveal several things to us, and five things that, that I have here. Number one, they reveal the misery of man in rebellion to God. We clearly see that. Beginning in the first bowl, we see that these seven judgments are directed towards unbelievers. In chapter 16, verse 2, they're against those who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Everyone who is not sealed by God bears the mark. Just as, uh, as we saw that those who um, are sealed by God, they're owned by God, those who are not believers in God have a false mark. Just as there is an antichrist, uh, and just as there is uh, the anti-bride, there is the anti-mark, the false mark. Now some people will say, okay, these, these bowls are going to be literal um, things that we're going to see, so people will really have sores and boils, water will really turn to be blood. Um, and, and there are people that believe that, but Revelation, if we remember, the genre is apocalyptic, which means we should first and foremost look at interpreting everything symbolically, which is what we did with the seals and the trumpets. So it only seems to make sense we should do so with the bowls. Um, so let me just give several reasons why it's best to look at this symbolically. Uh, number one, bowls use Exodus-type imagery. The very plagues that came upon Egypt seem to be very similar to the plagues that are now coming upon unbelievers in this world. And just as I, I said a couple weeks ago, Ben said last week, um, as he preached, physical realities in the Old Testament more often than not point to spiritual realities in the New Testament. So just as we, were, uh, we had a, a priestly uh, system and a sacrificial system, all of that ultimately points to the sacrifice of Christ and the spiritual forgiveness that he brings. The things that we see in the Old Testament are not usually a one-to-one -one ratio in the New Testament, but they point to new greater, often spiritual realities in the New Testament. Uh, bowls 2 and 3 are about water turning to blood. Now interesting, as we go into chapter 17 and 18, which is going to unpack 
uh, the very wrath of God that we're seeing in this chapter, we're told that water represents all the unbelievers of every tribe and nation of the world. We're told that the, the harlot, Babylon, this woman that sits on the beast, sits on these many waters. And the waters represents the unbelievers of the world. In chapter 18, water is clearly pictured as the economic prosperity of the world. And we're going to look at 17 and 18 next week, so we'll, we'll pull all this together there. Um, but there we see Babylon will be drowned and all her wealth will be laid to waste. And so water turning to blood most likely reveals the death of unbelievers and the economic problems and downfalls that will be experienced in this life. The fourth bowl, I think this one uh, is very helpful, is about the sun getting more intense and people getting burned by the fierce heat, literally being scorched. We, scorched. we see that in verse 8. Uh, for one, in the trumpets, we saw that the sun was darkened, so now it's intensified. So if we take things literally, it just gets weird, and it's hard to hold everything together. So it seems that, okay, trumpets, they were talking about a darkening, which was a separation from God. Here we're seeing the intensification of the sun. Now, in chapter 7, when we have a picture of the saints gathering around the throne room, these are saints who have been raised, who have died and have been raised and are with God, we are told in chapter 7 that they will no longer experience the scorching of the heat of the sun, which clearly refers to, in chapter 7, suffering that they occurred here on earth. And so, in the very same language, it seems that now this, in, this intensification of the sun, the heat that it brings, refers to the very suffering uh, that unbelievers will experience here on earth. And, and on a side note, to even build off of uh, what Josh was talking about earlier, um, again, we, we had a cool conversation. I wish everyone could have been a part of our conversation in the office earlier. Um, but, but we were talking a little bit about this, and he goes, and, and he just says, look, man, there is great misery apart from Christ. And he just, and he was just telling me, he's like, look, I, I pursued everything there is apart from Christ. I tried to make it myself. I did what I wanted, and misery lied at every single corner. That's, that's what we experience apart. And, and yes, there are times and there are people that we see like, well, they don't look miserable in their hearts, in their souls. There is great misery, and it may be masked for a time. And even if it is for their entire time here on earth, we know that that misery will be seen in all its intensity um, in eternity but regardless of whether you want to take these bowls as literal or figurative, the point to remember is to reject God and cling to the world is to experience the misery of God's judgment. Psalm 1611, it says this, In God's presence there is fullness of joy. That's what we see. That's why as the bride of Christ, even here on earth, even in a place of persecution and tribulation, and as we see the, these believers who had all their Bibles taken and they were beaten, they then stand and they, they, they proclaim to the rest of the world, Pray. Pray that the gospel will go forth, and they do that with great joy, and they pray, and they ask us to pray for them that they will stand firm. As believers, as the bride of Christ, we experience the presence of God now that we might have the joy of God now, even in the face of struggles, even in the face of hardships. But what we see is that apart from Christ, 
that there is anguish and that there is misery. Verse 9, we see that those will be scorched with the fierce heat of the sun. Verse 10, we're told people will gnaw at their tongues in anguish. Verse 21, we're told people will curse God as they're crushed by these hundred-pound hailstones. Clearly, the message of these bowls is that apart from God's grace, there will be misery, there will be pain, and there will be suffering. Happiness and joy on earth will always be fleeting. It's like trying to grab your shadow. You can never actually obtain it. The world will present idol after idol, and it will promise joy, it will promise happiness, it will promise meaning and purpose, but they will never satisfy. They will mask their misery for a period of time, but in the end, it leaves your mouth full of ash. It never, ever satisfies. And the misery here on this earth is a foretaste uh, of the great eternal anguish that awaits everyone who rejects God. And I might say, that sounds harsh. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be harsh. It's not trying to, to put a little bow on this and say, well, you know, judgment's coming, but don't worry, it's not bad. No, there are very real consequences. If we reject God, there's great, great consequences. And so, next point, these bowls reveal God's, <coughs> reveal God's justice. In verses 5 through 7, we see that they reveal God's justice on those who opposed him and his people. Look at verse 5. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And we see just a, a video here just in another part of the world, the clear response of the world to the gospel. They hate the gospel. 19th century writer Henrik Hein wrote, God will forgive me, that's his job. He was an atheist, he said, look, it doesn't matter what I do, his job is to forgive me. Um, that's a lie. His job is not to forgive you. His job is to always be in perfect alignment with his character. He will always act in perfect holiness. Now, God has sent his son into this world so that we who believe in him, we would not experience his wrath. His son Jesus came to die on a cross, that he would stand in our place, in your place, and in my place, that he would absorb God's wrath. And we're told in, in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the hope we have. That's what God has done. He has sent his son that he would come and bear the penalty, but... For those who deny Jesus, those who reject Jesus, those who say, I don't want the one who comes and bears the wrath of God, then upon them still is the wrath of God. God's job is not to forgive people. God is a just judge. He has provided forgiveness. And for all who believe in him, he's opened it. All who believe in him will be saved and will not be put to shame. And I hope you know that if you're here, if you've not trusted in Christ, if you believe in Christ, you are forgiven, you are saved, you will never be put to shame. Though this world hates you, though this world will kill you, though this world will despise you, 
God's arms will always be open to you and holding you, and you will always be a member of his family forever and ever and ever, and you will not be put to shame. Before we move on, notice that God is the one who promises vengeance on behalf of the saints. When we look at this world, we might, we might sometimes go, and we see the persecution of Christians, and, and there's a book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, where it's just a list Christians who have died and died and died. And what we see is that over the last 120 years, more Christians have died than in the previous 20 centuries all combined. And we might say, does God see this? Like, is he awake? Does he, is he aware of this? He says we won't be put to shame. He says he's going to care for us. It doesn't always look like that. But here in this passage, we're reminded, yes. Our God does. He sees you, he sees every single one of his children, and we are precious to him. In fact, I want want to remind you, these bowls are in response to the prayers of the saints. In chapter 6, verse 10, we saw martyred saints are under the altar crying out to God, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Remember, the seals are about showing us that the gospel will advance, but it will be as Christians die. We clearly see that. Chapter 7 is given so that we would have hope in that, that we are sealed and we're protected by God. Chapter 8 then comes, and chapter 8 shows us that from these prayers, God uses them to bring forth the trumpets, which are judgments here on this earth, which reveal God's judgment. Remember, those are like the snapshots. And then here, in verse 7, we read, And I heard the altar saying. Who's at the altar? Who's under the altar? Chapter 6, martyred saints are at the altar. They're the ones who are there crying out to God. So the saints are going, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty and true and just are your judgments. This is how God answers. In response to the prayers of the saints comes the trumpets and comes the bowls. So hear this, our God hears our prayers. He hears them. He will answer them in his perfect timing. We must remember that. It's not always our timing because our timing is now. Our timing is like we, we want it now. And just let's show the wrath. Let everyone vindic- let me be vindicated right now. And God says, I have a bigger plan. It's not just about one person, but it's about my bride being vindicated, about his holiness. Listen, our prayers are the very means in which God uses to bring about the wrath on this world, and eventually the return of his son. So I encourage you, like even as we're coming tonight, we come to pray. And one of the things we pray is, God, come. That's what we pray. God, your kingdom come. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, you're praying. God, bring forth your wrath. Come. Come and, and, and bring forth your wrath that wickedness would be done, your bride would be gathered and live with you forever. That's what's happening in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we're seeing lived out here in Revelation. So do not underestimate the power of prayer. Come tonight. Come tonight as we gather and we simply trust in God. God, come. Strengthen us now as we wait. But God, come. And get this, because we know our God's the one who brings vengeance, what does that do for us? It frees us to love our enemies. We're freed to love those who persecute us. We're freed to when, when they take our Bibles and when they beat us, to get more Bibles and go back in there, sharing the gospel 
all the more. It frees us to turn our cheek. It frees us when they take our cloak to give them another one. It frees us to do acts of kindness. Why? Because we're not the ones responsible for the vengeance. We're not the ones responsible to have to bring about all the judgment. God will make sure that that comes about. So we're freed to love. We're free to go forth and proclaim the gospel. It doesn't mean that we're pacifists. But because our God is ultimately the one who will avenge our blood, we trust him to judge. You know, sometimes when God's wrath is brought up, people will go, but but is this fair? Earlier we said that this seems harsh. We said, well, it is supposed to be harsh, but, but is it fair? Is it fair for God to punish unbelievers? What, what if they want to be saved? What if they're sitting there, God, I don't want to experience 100-pound hellstones. I don't want to experience these, these boils and these sores and this misery. Is this fair? Well, the bowls also reveal the hardness of man's heart. Three times in chapter 16, we're told how people respond to the bowls. Verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 11, we read, they cursed God for the plague of hell. If you remember, Pharaoh in the Old Testament responded the same way to the ten plagues that God brought about on Egypt. Continually hardened his heart, hardened his heart. So all the, the might, all the power, all the sovereignty that God was, was revealing and displaying, rather than him humbling himself and bowing him before God and saying, God, you are God and I am not. He hardens himself all the more. Hear this. All through Scripture, we see God's judgments will either bring people to repentance or will serve to harden people's hearts all the more. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of the opposite, right? He is a man who's on top of the world. And in chapter 4 of Daniel, he stands and he declares his greatness. And so God brings forth the fulfillment of a prophecy. And Nebuchadnezzar is then removed from his throne. He's given the mind of a beast where he lives in a field and his hair grows long and his nails grow long. And you just see the misery of this man. And then in Daniel chapter 4, we read this at the end. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Look, as the church, when we see people in torment, when we see them experiencing pain, when we see people in misery, when we see people in suffering, we need to go to them and love them, do acts of kindness for them, share the gospel with them, and pray that they will repent. Pray that God will use these very things that have come upon their life as a means of awakening them to the gospel. Suffering is often the tool that God uses to awaken people out of the stupor of their unbelief and bring them to faith. Let's use that. Let's have our eyes open when we see our neighbors, when we see, un, when we see our friends, our coworkers who don't know Christ. When we see misery come, let's move towards them that we could give them an answer, that we could help direct them, that we could help comfort them with the love that Christ has. Let's tell them that the pain they're in now is only a foretaste of a much, much greater judgment if they continue to reject God. But we also need to be prepared some of those people will not turn. 
They will not do what Nebuchadnezzar did, but they will, con- they will continue to harden their heart. They will grow in their hostility towards God. That's what we see here. Many, many people, as they experience the misery of this world, as they experience the wrath of God, rather than moving towards God, they move away from God. And I know you've seen that. I've seen that, where people have had hard things happen to them, and they've walked away from the church, and they hate the church now. They continue to harden themselves away, harden themselves towards God. Suffering is a tool that God uses to reveal what is inside our hearts. Suffering, it's like a crucible. The more it heats up, it will reveal whether we have faith in God or whether we reject God. Will it move us towards God or will it move us away from God? Suffering also, or the bowls also reveal the futility of man's rebellion. So we're going to look at bowls six and seven together here. I believe these ones are still come in the future. Um, the sixth bowl has occasioned much writing over the century. Uh, so we're going to try to see if we can unpack it. Uh, again, covering all seven bowls in, in one sermon. I'm sure there's questions you have. There's details that you'd like to go into, which we're not able to go into all of it. Um, but you can always text forth your questions. If we can't answer them here, we'll answer them uh, later. Verse 13, we see that from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, from the mouth of the false prophet, comes unclean spirits like frogs. And we're told that these, these are like demonic spirits that come forth. Remember, the dragon represents Satan. Uh, the beast is the Antichrist. The false prophet, re- the beast represents uh, the secular state powers. The false prophet represents false religions. Uh, and, and these frogs that come from, forth from this wicked trinity, these demonic beings, these spirits, Their purpose is to gather the kings of the east to cross the river Euphrates on dry ground and do battle with God Almighty. That's the point, right? These spirits are going to go, they're going to gather all the kings, they're going to gather all the forces of this world to cross a river, and they're going to fight upon, and they're going to battle against God. In verse 16, we're told the battle is at Armageddon, and this is a battle that's been anticipated all throughout Scripture. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. That's what we read in Zephaniah. God has told us throughout the prophets, I will one day gather those who have rejected me. I will gather those who have persecuted my people, and I will bring out my judgment. Now again, some people believe that this is going to be a literal battle, and and, and they're looking for a place where... um, where all the people will gather and battle against God. But again, I think it makes much greater sense to see us as, as symbolic. A couple reasons. Number one, kings from the East in the Old Testament always, always picture God's enemies. It is always the enemies of God's people come from the East. It doesn't matter if they come from the South. They're pictured as coming from the East. does not matter. People from the East are always the enemies of God. Every time a river is dried up in the Old Testament, it leads to the triumph of God's people and the destruction of God's enemies every time. Red Sea, Israel's triumphant, Egypt is destroyed. Jordan River, Israel's triumphant, Jericho is then defeated. Cyrus, this is a, this is a neat one, Cyrus actually dries up the river Euphrates crosses it, that he diverts the water, crosses it, infiltrates Babylon, overcomes the oppressors of God's people, which then what? Leads to Israel going back to Jerusalem. 
Armageddon means Mount Megiddo. But guess what? There's no mountain there. I've been there. We were there in what, like 2005? I've, been, I've stood in, in, Mount, in the valley of Megiddo. It is a valley. There is no mountain that is there. There is a hill, maybe 100, maybe, maybe 150 feet tall, but, but that's about it. Hardly a mountain. Um, now, we could look at some of the Old Testament battles that take place in Megiddo. And actually, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It gives us some neat reasons why this place might be chosen. But, for time's sake and, and everything else, the point, the point is, is the world is in complete rebellion against God. They don't just want to get rid of God. They don't just want to ignore God. They want God dead. That's what we see here. All the, all the forces of this world, they hate God. They're opposing God. People, um, the, the world does not want the gospel to go forth. It's illegal to take Bibles into many countries like North Korea, into places like we saw in India. In our modern culture, <coughs> people like Richard Dawkins write books like God Delusion trying to prove the irrationality of God. Hear this. It's not that the world just rejects God. It's they want him dead. If you remember in chapter 11, there will come a time when it looks like the church has been defeated. There's a time when it looks like the church has practically been erased from this earth because of the suffering and persecution. And in response to that, this is what the world does. Chapter 11, verse 10, we read the world will be merry and exchange gifts. They treat it like Christmas. The church is dead. Celebration occurs here on earth. That is their response to thinking they have overcome God. They give gifts I still, when we were studying Revelation 11, and in fact, Ben is the one who preached that message, still, that, that passage just continually left me dumbfounded, going, they give gifts. The church is dead, the world gives gifts. That's the way that John has, has communicated, has revealed the joy and the merriment of the world in thinking that they have won the battle against God. So what we have here in Revelation is a picture of the world's rebellion against God. It's a picture of creation absolutely rejecting the creator. And so what happens? The seventh bowl, verse 17, a loud voice from the throne, and it says, it is done. Just as Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished as he absorbed God's wrath. So on the day when Christ returns and all who have not experienced his love and his grace, God will say it is finished as he, he pours out his wrath on them. And we read that thunder and lightning and earthquake that splits Babylon. This is what we saw in the, uh, in the, in the seventh seal, in the, in the seventh trumpet. We see this lightning, we see this earthquake. We see here that Babylon, the picture of the world, will be split into three parts. Verse 19, Babylon will drain the cup of the fury of God's wrath. Islands are fleeing, mountains are melting. Literally, creation is being undone as God's holy presence comes upon this earth. We read about this battle later in Revelation 19. Jesus is seen on a horse. He rides in. The, bat, the armies are, are before him. And with a sword out of his mouth, he defeats the enemies. This isn't a battle of, of who's going to win, of one army against another. No, it is about our King Jesus coming, him standing before the armies, and with his word saying, it is done. Judgment comes, and they are defeated. That is the picture that we have here. 
this world will not be able to rage against God forever. Jesus will return, and the battle will be won by the word of God. Eternal judgment is the end game for all who reject God. So let me give you just two ways that we'll respond um, at this moment. Number one, we should praise God for his justice. We clearly see that in verses 5, 6, and 7. God is demonstrating his justice. He is a just judge. Just as we praise a judge here on earth who, who, who sentences murderers to death or murderers to jail, so our God will one day, and he will justly judge. And all those who have rejected him will experience that. Secondly, <clears throat> I think it ought to move us to pray for those who do not know God. This ought to move us to prayer. We ought to share the gospel more, that, that we would be burdened with the names of those who are around us who do not know Jesus. But there's, there's a, one more response, and this brings us to our last point. It reveals the need for Christians to anticipate Jesus' return. The bowls reveal the need for Christians to anticipate Jesus' return. Look at verse 15. It's an amazing verse. We have right here in the midst of these bowls. It's this parenthetical verse in the midst of the sixth bowl. Jesus is speaking. Some of you have those red-letter Bibles. Isn't that helpful? They're like, oh, Jesus is speaking. Uh, and he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So get this. In the midst of judgment that's going to come upon unbelievers, we are given this reminder that Jesus will come like a thief and we need to be ready. Here's a whole other reason why I believe that these bowls are taking place now. Because Jesus is talking to the church that's in the midst of these bowls going through them. So often we want to ignore judgments, but here Jesus uses the judgment upon unbelievers as a means of spurring us on in our faith. These sections of wrath and judgment tell us what happens to those who reject Jesus, but they're also meant to strengthen us, to awaken us, to, to move us forward. If you remember, chapters 2 and 3, they're the, they're the seven letters. And in those seven letters, we have, we have descriptions of the churches. Every church is facing persecution. Every church is going through temptations. Five out of the seven have compromised. Sardis is told, wake up. You look alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Laodicea is described as poor, blind, naked, and pitiable. But here's the point. They begin to look like the world. They thought they could keep one foot in God's kingdom, one foot in the world's kingdom. And so here Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming you need to be ready, you need to expect it, you need to cut ties with the world, and you need to live in anticipation of my return. Now this, this doesn't mean that we take our iPhones and we throw them away, and, and we get rid of our cars, and we go live in our, in our huts, whatever else, um, but it does mean that we're not to be consumed with the things of this world. Again, here, we will never say at this church that the things of this world are bad. Possessions are not evil intrinsically of themselves, but it's what we do with them in our hearts that matters. And Jesus is calling us, live in light of my return. The world wants nothing more for us to be caught up in its intoxicating lies. The world wants us to find our comfort, our joy, our purpose, in our jobs, in our finances, in our accomplishments, in our sexual orientation. Many of those things can be good, but they can never become great things. 
In fact, when we get into chapter 17, 18, I, I love that we're going to be there next week because I think it's great that we start there in the beginning of this uh, beginning of a year because chapter 17, 18 is just going to look at the comforts, look at what Babylon promises. And when we get to the end of chapter 18, it shows they all perish. That's what I love. Is that, yes, these things can be good, but if we want to make our phones, our, our sexual orientation, if we want to make um, our houses, our jobs, our spouses, our kids, as the primary things in our life, what gives us meaning, what gives us purpose, we see the end result of that. There is misery, there is downfall, and they will all be removed. All The world will continually seek to distract us from living for the glory of Jesus. They want us to forget about the new heavens and new earth. Remember, I've said this before. I think it's kind of crazy. I don't know how he did it. Jonathan Edwards, he said, he thought about heaven for 20 minutes a day. Like, what does that look like? He didn't have alarm clocks back then. So, like, would that be us, like, setting alarm clock, like, one, like one o'clock? Oh, from 1 to one twenty now, like, we, we think about heaven. Somehow he did it, or he says he did it. But what I like is he never wanted to think this world is it. He always wanted to think this world is only the preparation for the next world. How I live now determines where I live then. It's not that our actions will save us, but our actions show whether we have faith or whether we don't have faith. And so what has happening here in these seven bowls is all of a sudden, verse 15, Jesus speaks and says, wake up, church. You're not looking like the world, are you? Are, are you looking alive, but you're actually dead? Are you poor, blind, and naked like Laodicea? And Jesus wants to vomit you out? He's calling us. How are we living? And so I think that's a great way for us to think as, as we're going into 2019. How are we living? When you have free time, where does your mind run to? Are your days marked with loving people as God would have you? Are you looking at how you get to serve others and advance the gospel? Or are we beginning to be more concerned with how do we establish our kingdom? How, how do I get more power, more position, more prestige? Or am I looking at how, how is the gospel being advanced? How does my work lead towards sharing the gospel? How, how do I get to serve my neighbors? How do I love family members who are around me? Are we thinking and acting in a way that shows that everything in this world will pass away? And that's hard. That is hard. I encourage you, uh, in your Bibles, I have a reference for Ephesians 5, uh, to read that later. It talks about to live wise in our times now. Um, but let, me just, let me just end with just how we walk wisely. How do we make the best use of our time? How do we, knowing that God's wrath is on display, and that unbelievers are experiencing misery, and there's only greater misery that awaits them. How do we live now? How do we live faithful? How do we live in a way that will advance the gospel, that will go to the increase of our joy, that will move towards God's glory being spread throughout this world? There's no magical formula. There's no way you do this and this happens. But we do see simple truths. Number one is, is to be part of the church. Is to be part of the church is to be gathering with believers. And, and this is a good example of that, but not the only example. We, we do table groups here. And we don't do table groups. It's like our form of small groups just because we think that's a good idea. But we know we need a 
accountability. We need encouragement. I need people praying for me. You need people praying for you. We need to walk with each other. We need to say, hey, are, are you living for the things of this world? I need you to ask me that question. Right, we need to say, hey, who have you shared the gospel with lately? And if we can't answer that, then we need to say, hey, we, we need to pray about that. We need to walk together. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Word. It's in this Word that, that our faith is strengthened each and every day. It's in this Word that we grow in wisdom. It's in this Word that we know that we will accurately see this world. We'll see Babylon for what it actually is. If we're not in this world, we be, word, we begin to think that, oh wait, the things of this world are very attractive. Maybe we should live for them more and more. The word is what helps us have the faith and the understanding to accurately see the things of this world. Prayer. We've already talked about prayer. We need to be in prayer. It's how we depend upon God. It's how we ask for God for help. It's how, it's how you ask God to help me. It's how I help ask God to help you. It's we need the prayers of one another. It's not that we just pray for ourselves, but we pray for the church. It's pray for unbelievers that are around us, and we need to act. We need to live out the very faith that we have. I think sometimes we, we get we get comfortable just we, we, we gather with the church we do our bible reading plan and 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 that's it we've checked our boxes so so everything looks good but are we acting are we living do our finances do our does our free time do our conversations show the gospel show a love for the very glory of god or, or do they show a lack so we need to be acting out our faith Spurring one another on in our faith that we would live for God's glory. Um, these are seven bowls of wrath. We'll see what we have here next week. We'll be in chapter 17, 18. I want to pray. We're going to go into communion. And as we go into communion, we, we celebrate what Jesus has done. That he absorbed the wrath of God. This is what we celebrate. This is what we proclaim. And so uh, as I pray, I'll go ahead and ask the men to come forward.